Pei. The portion of the week that's coming up is Parshas Vayetze. And Parshas Vayetze basically deals with Yaakov, the third of our forefathers, Jacob, leaving home in flight from Esav, in flight from his brother who would love to take his life for having tricked him out of his birthright and the blessings which we discussed last week. And in this week's portion, in the dealings of his different voyages and journeys, in his flight from Esav, he lands up in the house of Lavan. He lands up in the house of a fellow called Lavan, who will eventually become his father-in-law. There he meets both Rachel and Leah, which become his two wives. There in the parsha is discussed how the family of Jacob is slowly being built. And the portion ends off when Yaakov makes a decision that it's time to leave Lavan after everything that Lavan has done to him in the 20 years that he served, worked with him. And the episode ends off with some kind of a peace pact, which Lavan wasn't really happy with, but he was forced into because God warned him that if he does anything to Yaakov, in the end he'll suffer badly for it. And that's basically what the portion of the week is about, in a very brief sketch. What emerges from the Parshas Vayetze is that we see a man, Yaakov, who has up to this time been a person who's been an Ishtam Yoshe Vahalem, who's been a simple person who found his fulfillment in life in terms of developing and furthering his education in terms of Torah knowledge, all of a sudden he's thrust into the problems of Gullus, into the problems of an exile. It was a personal exile from a danger, and he meets up with most probably even a more significant danger than Esau himself when he goes to the house of Lavan. Because while Lavan didn't pose a physical threat to Yaakov at this particular point, he did pose a spiritual threat to him in terms of trying to diminish Yaakov's commitment towards certain essential values, primarily the value of truth. Lavan is known as the swindler. Lavan Harami is the way he's referred to. Yaakov had to live with that situation, remain honest, and nevertheless remain alive. And naturally that presented a great spiritual challenge to Yaakov. <coughs> it's commonly known that each one of our forefathers had a particular attribute at which he excelled. And that particular attribute was the attribute that served as that person's unique bridge between himself and God. We talk about Abraham being a person that excelled in the attribute of chesed, loving kindness, and he found God and he propagated the concept of a God in the world because of his motivations of loving kindness. Yitzhak, on the other hand, we pointed out last week, was a man that developed in great measure because of attributes of self-control and a sense of justice, of what was right and what was wrong. He was a law and order man, if you want to call him that. That was the style of his life. And it was through that sense of justice that he too found a way of understanding God and coming close to God. Yaakov, the third of our forefathers, who brings together the entire heritage of the, uh, the forefathers that were before him excelled in an attribute which is called the attribute of emes, the attribute of truth. The attribute of truth is commonly understood to be a perfect balance or blend between the attribute of loving kindness and the attribute of justice. 
the attribute of loving kindness without it being spiced with justice or justice without it being spiced with chesed, loving kindness, is an extreme in a certain aspect and therefore inevitably has certain problems with it. What Yaakov accomplished in his lifetime was to make a perfect blend between the two characteristics of loving kindness and justice. What evolved was the Midas Harachmim, the attribute of compassion, which is based in truth. Seeing the entire picture, seeing the lenient side, seeing the severe side, and trying to make a balance. Not to say that Abraham was an extreme man in terms of chesed and Yitzhak was an extreme man in terms of justice and they didn't possess the, uh, the other qualities of each other, but their particular connection to God was very heavy in one particular area, either chesed, loving kindness, or the attribute of justice. Yaakov made a blend in which he bridged himself with God in a perfect blend between the two. And that emerges as the quality which is called truth, emes. Now, it's very clear that the attribute of truth is most probably the most significant tool that a human being can possess when he has to face a world and an onslaught of all kinds of modes, fashions, beliefs, ideologies, of which 99% of them are a lot of rubbish. And when all of these things present themselves to a person, and they all have their catchy phrases and cliches, and they all have their neon lights and their different ways of luring a person, it is only the sense of truth that can really define right from wrong, proper from improper, and correct from incorrect. That's the only thing that you have left. And in a certain sense, if you think of it for a moment, that element of having the truth on your side is most probably the most powerful tool that a person can have. It's true. It's not a powerful rifle or a shotgun. It doesn't blow people away, but it definitely gives me a sense of firm footing where I am, where I'm going, what I'm supposed to be doing, and not to be hurt or to be bothered or swayed by every mishigas that goes on in the world around us. So it's a very strong element. Emes is very, very strong. And the way we explained this last year and again, I would suggest that those of you that weren't by the class last year on Parashas Vayetze, the tape is available, and I did bring it here so it can be reproduced. But every year, the class becomes a bit more advanced from the year before. What we spoke about last year was that the element of truth, Yaakov's Mida of Emes, is the crucial element that the Jew needs when he goes into exile. Yaakov did it as a forerunner for us. Yaakov met different exiles of his own. He had four major problems in his life. The problems with his brother Esau, the problems with his father-in-law Lavan, the problems with his daughter Dina, and ultimately the problems with his son Yosef. And they represent the four exiles that the Jew would subsequently have to face, of which we're in the fourth. What we pointed out last year was that Yaakov, being the man of truth, gave us a heritage of being able to find that truth through Torah and therefore survive all exiles. This was the basic theme of our discussion last year. But I have a question to ask. I have a question to ask. And it's a very critical question. We know that there are two kinds of negative inclinations that come to the person and try to persuade him to do something 
That's not correct. Now, that persuasion can be an inclination, that persuasion can be an environment, that could be a culture, but it comes in two forms. It comes in the form of telling the person, this is the correct thing to do, rationalization, this is right, and it's a mitzvah to do it, it's proper to do it, and if you don't do it, it's an avera. And if you recall one of our form, earlier lectures, we said that's the Yetzirah that comes with the big saintly white beard and tells us that it's a mitzvah to do. And then on the other hand, there's the Yetzirah, there's an inclination that appears to us as negative. We know it's negative. We know that it's not the correct thing to do, but by golly, I'm in the mood of having a good time and I'll do it even if I know it's wrong to do. And that's the Yetzirah, the inclination with no bones about it, appears to me as the villain that he is, and he says, do it anyhow. You'll think about how to correct it later. God will forget, God will forgive, and all that other kind of stuff. Now, when you talk about Emmis, when you talk about truth combating that inclination, I understand it on one level and I don't understand it on the other. If you're talking about where the inclination comes to you and says to you, this is correct to do, and it's a mitzvah to do it, and it would be a terrible transgression not to do it. So obviously a person that has his roots in truth will be able to see through this smoke screen, will be able to see that all of this is just pulling the wool over one's eyes, and he will be able to call a spade a spade and contend with the inclination. But how does Emmis, how does truth contend with an inclination which does not try to distort the facts? but says them as they are, but nevertheless urges the person to do something even though he knows that it's not right. I never made statistics on this, and it's difficult to make statistics on this, but before the act, I don't know in terms of percentages how many people do things that are incorrect with honestly believing that they're right to do. Right? I don't know. I would, I would seem to doubt if the, proportion, the, the percentage is terribly high. So the so we deal with inclinations which are definitely there in their grossest form. They're not distorting issues and they're just saying do it anyhow. Now, for an inclination that's not distorting an issue and saying, pushing the person to do it anyhow, what does Emmis help? What does truth help? This person is not suffering from a lack of truth. He knows what the truth is. But he wants to do it anyway. So how does Yaakov, who represented the warrior that would fight all forms of negative inclination because he represented the warrior of the four exiles, how does his element of truth deal with both kinds? If every exile would present itself as a distortion of truth, then I understand how Yaakov is a warrior of all exiles. But if there are inclinations and exiles that represent not a distortion of the truth, but do it just for the sake of doing it, how does Yaakov with his attribute of MS, his attribute of truth, represent a meaningful challenge to those kind of persuasions. Where does truth fit in? If somebody says to me, do this, it's wrong to do, but you'll have a good time and go, go do it. Where does, how does truth combat that kind of a situation? <clears throat> this evening, or today, to be more accurate, is the yard site, is the anniversary of the, anniversary of the Ptira or the death of Revaran Cutler. Revaran Kutler Zatzal, of blessed memory, was the dean of the school back east that I learned in. He established 
most probably the greatest center for Jewish learning in America immediately after the war. I did not learn by his by Revarin Kutler's Atal, but I did learn by his son, Rav Schneer Kutler, who passed away two, three years ago. It's customary, and it's a minog, that on the yard site, that we say over Torah, we say over thoughts of Torah, that that person, while he was alive, shared with his disciples. I feel a tremendous sense of responsibility, appreciation, and gratitude to do that, because were it not for both the father and the son, Revaran Kutla and his son, I most probably wouldn't be of the level to be able to say a class here this evening to begin with. And the answer to the question that I just posed, while the question was not posed by my teachers, but the answer to this question I found in some of their writings. And I would like to share those thoughts with you. So again, to be precise, the question is a question that I've posed. The application of the writings to, to answer this question is my own, but the material itself that we will be sharing at this point comes from the writings of Revarin Kutler of Blessed Memory. In Deuteronomy, there's a verse that says the following thing. You are children. You are sons and daughters of God, your God. And therefore, I do not want that you should scratch in or create any kind of a boldness, whatever, as an expression of mourning or sorrow upon a person that dies. There used to be a custom that when a person died, those that were closest to the deceased, in an expression of terrible sadness, used to tear their skin, scratch their skin, make areas of boldness to express their sorrow. And the Torah clearly prohibits this kind of behavior for a Jew. And for every scratch or for every bald spot that a person would do, he would, be re he would be responsible in a separate way for having transgressed something that the Torah has said. The immediate understanding of this prohibition is that a person cannot get carried away in a state of mourning. An expression of this nature, of this extreme, represents a proclamation on the person's part that he is totally lost without this person. And this is not a correct statement for a Jew to make. Because as long as there's a God in the world, a Jew is never completely lost. And to take mourning to that extreme of, of expressing total sorrow and there can't be any state of happiness left in my life is contrary and disrespectful to the deepest relationship that exists between Jew and God. Our highest father, our deepest father is God. This is the understanding of the prohibition on its simplest level, and it would then under, be understood as being a prohibition which inculcates into us a sense of appreciation for our relative, that relative being God. You're not lost. But Rashi says a completely, Rashi, who is most probably the primary commentary on the Chumash, says a completely different reason. Rashi says the following thing, Since you are children of God, and it's, 
it's befitting for you as children of God to appear nice, to be presentable, to look nice. And you shouldn't look like you're torn up and scratched up. Therefore, you are prohibited to do such a thing to yourself. Rashi is clearly saying here that being that we are children of this great God, for us to appear in a disshelved manner or in an ugly manner is not befitting us as children of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. This is what Rashi is saying. So much so, so much so, that for every scratch, we've prohibited that, trans- we've, we've transgressed that prohibition. In other words, there's a degree of realizing that we are children of God, and as children of God, we should, we should look beautiful and present ourselves with pride and joy, and to do such a thing defaces that concept of us being children of God. That's quite different than the explanation that I said before. The explanation that I said before defines an obligation of understanding our relationship with God and it reflects on the glory of God. This definition reflects on the human glory. The human being has something to be proud of. The human being has something that he has to present in a very beautiful fashion and it is none other than himself and for him to do such a thing to himself is defacing his potential as a child of God now when we talk about being children of God and therefore not being able to do such a thing this is not some kind of poetic prose but this means, in a very literal sense, we are Banim Shalmaka. We are children of God, which means we possess, in the same way that children possess qualities and characteristics of, God, of their father, we, as children of God, possess, in a real way, those characteristics. We are Banim Shalmaka. <coughs> what does this mitzvah then project? This mitzvah projects a very interesting and very important philosophy. And that philosophy is that a person has to have the image of himself that he's a child of God. I am a Ben Lamakan. I am the son of. And because I am the son of, I must carry myself with the dignity and the pride of being that kind of a child. And for me to do anything that's, that represents my not feeling that proudful self-image is contradicting my belief that I'm a Ben Lamakai. In other words, the Torah puts aside, clearly states in a prohibition form that the Torah says that a person must guard upon that knowledge, upon that understanding of himself as being a Ben Lamakai. Right? And he has to preserve it. And he has to make sure that he holds it in check. Immediately after this verse, the Torah then goes on to say that we are a holy nation and that we were chosen for a holy mission, which is a direct follow-up to the Pasuk before. We are children of God. We possess godly characteristics. We are a holy people and we have holy purpose and function. If we analyze this, and I hate to be critical about this, but if we analyze this, most people are much quicker to recognize their faults or their shortcomings. 
And most people don't think about the great potentials and the great self-images that they possess. We think of our prisos, we think about our shortcomings, number one, because they are very close and apparent to us. We grew up with them. We were used to the first 10, 15, 20, and sometimes a lot longer in our lives of living lives that are totally based in materialistic endeavors and materialistic goals. And obviously, once one is involved in those kinds of endeavors, there are certain shortcomings that are part and parcel of such strivings. Jealousy, hatred, and everything else that goes along with it. So we become very knowledgeable of our shortcomings in our materialistic pursuits. We don't start off as spiritually mature people. We start off as children that need diapers and bottles and a lot of cuddling. And then we grow up and we need dolls and toys and over a lot of other materialistic things. And it's only much later on that our minds begin to open up and we begin to sense that there's something hidden that there's something deeper in life. So the first thing that we're familiar with, the first thing that we build our habits with is around materialistic concepts and goals. And therefore, we become acquainted with our shortcomings that evolve from these kinds of things at a very young age. And then when you throw at the person and you say, you're a child of God, you almost look at the person in disbelief. Nonsense. That's good for Billy Graham on TV. What does it have to do with Judaism? I know what I am. But the truth of the matter is that it's a person does himself a tremendous disservice by not realizing his greatness. You are children of God. The truth of the matter is that strictly from a psychological point of view, when a person thinks of himself in very low terms and has a very poor self-image of himself, what happens is, is that he becomes his own catalyst of becoming a small person. In other words, if you red zechain, if you talk yourself blue in the face that you're nothing, what happens is that you never move to become anything. Because you talk yourself into, I'm this and I'm this and I have this shortcoming and that shortcoming and I can't do anything about it. And it's all not true, but if you're determined that you can't do anything about it, you talk, I won't do anything about it. Nothing will come out of it. It's like the rich person that's not aware of the fact that he, he owns and he possesses assets. He's a poor person. A person that's wealthy, has a million dollars, but he's not aware of the fact that he has the million dollars, is a poor person. Because he doesn't know that he has it, he doesn't know that he has it to use it, and he's a poor person. In the same way, a person that doesn't know that he's a ben lamakam, that he doesn't know that he's a child of God, for all intents and purposes, he's not. Because by his not being aware of that, there is no way that he can grow to be that. We can grow to act in that way. So what we're saying on the first level is that the image that a person has of himself is directly responsible for his growing into that image. And if a person is not aware of that image, there's no way of him ever relating to those potentials. Revarin Kutla Zatzal says that this factor of realizing how great one is is the prime way 
that a person can correct himself. The strength of a person being able to correct his shortcomings is in the knowledge of his greatness. Now let's explain that. Be, if a person knows that he's a Ben Lamaka, if a person knows that he's a child of God with tremendous potentials, when he contemplates doing something, he will always make a decision, is this compatible with the image that I have of myself of being a Ben Lamaka? If a person has an authentic image of his greatness, the question that will always come up, is this compatible with my greatness? Does this, is, does this run in line? Will this damage that greatness? Or is this consistent with it and will make it grow? That's, in other words, if a person has a positive image of himself, he always has a basis of comparison when he then has to make a decision about doing something. <coughs> I'd like to give you an example in halacha, in Jewish law, that brings out this concept very, very clearly. There's a law that if a person eats in the street, in the marketplace, he is, has disqualified himself from being an aide, of being a witness in a courtroom. Now, under normal circumstances, the only person that's disqualified as being a witness in a courtroom is a Russia, is a wicked person that has transgressed willingly and purposefully a directive of the Torah. All of a sudden, the Talmud tells us that a person that eats in the marketplace, buys a piece of pizza and eats it in the marketplace, he's disqualified as a witness. And the question is, what is what's the big crime? might not be the nicest place to eat, but what's the big crime that you become disqualified as a witness? What does eating a piece of pizza in the marketplace have to do with my fear of heaven and my sense of truth and honesty to say the truth when I act as a witness in a courtroom? The answer is that ultimately what prevents a person from saying something that's not true is because he says to himself one thing. It's not proper for me to do such a thing. Ultimately, ultimately, the greatest factor in preventing a person from doing something that's incorrect, in this case saying testimony, which is not true, is that he says to himself, how can I do such a thing? The person that eats in the marketplace is a person that doesn't have a positive image of himself in the first place. He doesn't care where he eats. He doesn't have a proper image. All right? I guess the marketplaces were a little bit different than they are today. But it represented not having a healthy image of oneself. Once you didn't have a healthy image of yourself, you couldn't be trusted. Because if you didn't have a healthy image of yourself, that meant that in the face of a spiritual struggle, you didn't have enough to dip into in terms of strength to be able to fight that struggle. So the person that eats in the marketplace, Pasoliatus, he's disqualified. Because he doesn't have that strength of image to be able to contend with the test, should I say the truth or shouldn't I say the truth? So it goes quite far. On the other hand, if a person does have that kind of an image of himself, so what it really means when that person has that kind of an image of himself is that that will make him grow spiritually. It's a phenomenal thing. 
because we usually think that our psychological and mental growth is one area and our religious observance is a separate area. Here we see that they are directly related to each other. A person that suffers from a poor self-image is not able to grow spiritually and is not trusted in terms of his spiritual growth. And therefore, a person does himself a spiritual discredit by not seeing himself as a ben lamaka, not seeing himself as a child of God. In other words, the issue of not seeing yourself as a child of God is not a psychological issue alone. It's not isolated. It will enter into every area of human behavior because the image that I have of myself will then define itself into the way I can contend and have strength to deal with spiritual struggle. <coughs> the Gemara says, the Talmud says another example, that a Talmud Chacham, a sage, was able to get an item that he lost back from the finder of the item with tfias ayin, which means that if he said that he recognized the object, even if he didn't give specific signs or symbols of the object, you gave it back to him because he had a certain sense of trust. A normal person that had lost something would have to give specific signs. There was a scratch on this side and there was a little emblem here. But a tamachacham, a sage who has a higher level of trust, if he was able to just say, yeah, it looks like my thing, that was good enough. So the Talmud says, and how do we define that level of Talmud Chacham? So the Talmud says, listen to this, the person that turns in his clothes, that the sewn part of the clothes don't show on the outside. In other words, you could have worn the clothes in a sloppy fashion, and the stitching could have shown on the outside, and that kind of a Talmud Chacham, you won't trust to give back his item with Tviyasayim, but the person that's careful to turn in the stitch that he should appear very re presentable, that's the person that you can return it to. Again, the same idea. The self-image that a person has of himself is critical in terms of his being able to grow in spiritually. And what the Torah is then telling us is that when I give you a Torah and I present you with challenges of spiritual growth, the first thing that you've got to know is Banim Atem Hashem that you're children of God. And because you're children of God, you have a lot there. There's a lot there. And because you have a lot there, that's what makes it possible to be able to grow from struggle. <coughs> Therefore, the Talmud tells us that a person should always measure himself in the way of saying that he has a holy energy within himself. That there's a holy dimension inside of me not outside, and if I'll roll in the, slow, the snow long enough, or within yourself there's holiness. And comes to mind a very interesting story of Rabbi Yechonen ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yechonen ben Zakkai on his deathbed, and his disciples are around his bed, ask him for a last piece of advice. And Rabbi Yechonen ben Zakkai says, the following things, that you should have the fear upon yourselves of, of God in the same way that you fear another person. In other words, so his disciples said, Why, what does that mean? That we should fear God in the way that we fear people? What is that supposed to mean? So Rabbi Yechonim ben Zakkai said, how often does it happen that you won't do something that's not correct simply because somebody's looking simply because somebody is looking 
So Rabbi Yechne, and the fact that God is looking, that doesn't mean anything. So when I give you a blessing and a piece of advice that you should fear God the way you fear people, it's more than enough. This is what Rabbi Yechne ben Zakkai said. So Rabbi Aaron Kotler's Atzal says something very interesting. He says, we have fear of other people. How come we don't have fear of our, fr- of, from ourselves? We're also a person. How do we deny, how do we deny ourselves doing the thing? We're also a per- and I'm not an Adam. In other words, if somebody else is watching me and he sees what I'm doing wrong, that's awful. I would never do it. Okay? And therefore, Rabbi Yechon Mezake has to say that halavai, in other words, it should only be that your fear of God should be the fear of other people. But don't you realize that at the same time that you're doing it, you're also a person watching yourself doing it. You're also a person. So what's the answer? You deny that you're a person. You're deni- in other words, there's a denial in yourself as being a person. Another person looking at it and assessing it, that'll bother me. But the fact that I know myself that I'm doing it, that doesn't bother me. You're denying yourself as a human being. goes back to the same issue. Bonimatem la Hashem You're children of God. And you have to have the image of yourselves as those kinds of children of God. If you have that kind of image, how can you do it to yourself? If somebody else sees it, oh, it's terrible. How can I do it to myself? How can, I, am I not looking at myself? That's, that's what Rabbi Eichen and Ben Zakei said. Now, here things get a little bit deeper. Because when you deal with self-image and you get involved in you get involved in this. There's one big conflict. I say that I'm a child of God and because I'm a child of God now the things that I do have to be defined as being compatible with that kind of an image. And the question that always comes up, the problem that always comes up is but is that really what I am? It might be a dimension of my life but is that really, really what I am? Maybe I'm a lot of other things. All my other interests, all my other talents. Okay, I accept the fact that there's a dimension of spirituality in me. All right, you got me that far. But to say that that's me? Now, if it's not me, why should it define everything that I do? It's not enough to just say that it's a dimension. What we are saying here is that it's not just a dimension of my personality. It is the essence of my personality. Because if it's not the essence of my personality, it's just one of those dimensions. It's a facet. That's what they call it. A facet of my personality. It doesn't necessarily have to define every activity. So what I'm saying here is not that it's a facet, but it's the, enti- it's the essence of my personality. And because it's the essence of my personality, therefore every single thing that I do has to be compatible with it. What makes it difficult for us to take that second gulp and to accept not only that it's a dimension of my existence, but that it is the primary part of my existence. It's the essence of my personality. is a full definition of personality. It's not one of those recessive traits that shows up by accident. It's a dominant factor. But that's difficult to accept. That far we don't want to go. And the difficulty with that is because there is another dimension in our lives 
And that's our materialistic existence. Our materialistic existence begs for attention, demands and desires, and pulls us in every sort of direction. And because that that is a component that we have to deal with, it sets us into a state of confusion as to exactly what is the essence of my personality. Is it all those materialistic things that are driving me? Or is it that deeper spiritual force that is my essence? In other words, were it not for the fact that there is a competitive force in my life, every person would be able to recognize that that's the essence of his personality. Our difficulty in recognizing that as the essence of our personality is because there's somebody that's competing for our attention and competing for our, for our, for our assistance in what he wants. <clears throat> the truth of the matter is, and I'll say it with a story, Hillel Hazakain was together with his disciples and Hillel Hazakain says to his disciples, I am now going to do a mitzvah. So they ask him, where are you going? So he says, well, I'm, going, I'm going to take a bath. I'm going to the Beis HaMerchatz. So his disciples look at him, you know, a bath's important, but why is it a mitzvah? Why is it a mitzvah? So Hillel Hazakain gives an answer and he responds, and he says, he says, a person that's hired to take care of the monuments and the statues of the king gets out his soap and his bleach and his polish and he's really dedicated to taking care of those monuments. So I that am created with an image of God, I should not take care of that image, of the Tzarche Haguf. That was Hillel's answer. Upon which the Talmud says, and this is what's meant when it says in the verse, Gomel Nafshau Ish Chesed. A person that takes care of himself is a man of loving kindness. This is what the Medrash says. Now, everything up to the last words made a lot of sense. But to say that if a person takes a bath, he's an Ish Chesed, he's a man of loving kindness, how does that fit? But in those last words of the story, is being, it's being revealed a very primary attitude that our sages had. They viewed the needs of their bodies and what had to be done, not denied, but what had to be done in similar fashion to other needs. In other words, if somebody comes knocking on my door and says, I need supper. So if you're a man of loving kindness, you will help that person. There is a need from the outside that's being expressed and being asked for help. And I will respond. That's a man of loving kindness. What Hillel Azokin was saying here was something that was very deep. Hillel Azokin was saying that the needs of my body I view as a need, as a, as a need that's expressed. As an ex- in other words, there's an external, there's an external demand there's a, an external proclamation that says, please give me this. As in a man of chesed, I will deal with that. In other words, what Hill viewed in terms of his tzachi aguf is, my body is here to serve the soul. The soul is my primary personality, but the body is here to serve it. And if the body needs something, I have to help it. But not to say that this is me. In other words, if it's me, it's not an act of loving kindness. But if it's if it's an outside dimension, which is here for a purpose, I'm not denying that. 
But if it's an outside dimension, but it's not the essence of my personality, so I will help it as I help others. In other words, the way they looked at the Tzorchei HaGuf is they understood that this wasn't the essence of their living and the goal of their living, but that it was, it was something in, 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 in life that had to be helped in order to make all of life meaningful. But it wasn't the center. It wasn't, this isn't me. This is an, this is an act of chesed. I must help the body so that it will be able to serve its function in my essential personality. Now, that makes a dramatic shift because the minute that the person realizes that his body is there to serve his essential personality, which is his neshama, and he extends himself out to his body as, okay, you're coming knocking on my door and you deserve my help. Right? And you deserve my help. Then the whole, the whole balance that the person has is a completely different one. We are not saying that a person is supposed to deny his physical needs. But what he has to do is he has to put them in their proper perspective. Is that me? My physical needs is a definition of me? Or is it a, is it a definition of something which demands my attention? In the same way that a poor person that comes knocking on the door demands my attention and my concern. Once that happens, it's much easier for a person to be able to deal with the concept of once one knows the ultimate function and purpose of those materialistic needs and understands that they are, they are servants to my essential personality it becomes much easier to accept the fact that my personality is the personality of a child of God because that competitive force we realize is a competitive force ultimately to help me in my pursuit of being a child of God I don't view it as a competitor in terms of my personality. Now, what this really leads to... Now, I just wanted to point out one thing just before we go further. The concept of Bonim Atem L'Hashem the concept of being children of God, has nothing to do with arrogance. In other words, a person can say, wow, this is the greatest trap to a person to become arrogant. I'm a child of God. But if you think of it, is a definition of a relationship. In other words, it's not saying, you're great. It's, it's defining a relationship. That's what it's doing. In other words, I stand in front of God in a relationship of a child of God. Once the definition of the relationship is not I'm great, but the, the definition is that I'm a child of God, that truth can only well up in a person a sense of humbleness that God has included me as being his child and that he cares for me as a father. In other words, understanding it in the, in, immediately in the association of a relationship prevents the danger of it becoming an arrogant ploy. So we're not talking about arrogance here. We're talking about esteem. The difference between esteem and arrogance is what we're talking about. It's interesting that when God gave us the Torah, just to go a little bit further on the same concept, when God gave us the Torah, the first words of introduction to the Torah were, you're a great and holy people and a host of priests. That was the introduction to Torah. Why? 
because without an authentic, positive self-image of oneself, Torah doesn't begin. It's meaningless. It can't change me. It can't define me. It can't give me a direction in life. It can't bring me closer to God because the foundation of having a healthy self-image doesn't exist. So the first words that God says to us as a people is not do this, do that, do this, do that. Mamlechus kehanim v'gay kaddish. You're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, don't get me wrong. This is not one of these psychiatric tricks where you tell a person that he's real good and he's really not. It's the truth that he's a ben lamaka. I'm just expressing it this way because it has tremendous psychological ramifications that we can't deny. We can't deny that. And when the, God gave us the Torah, God did not give us the Torah outside of the psychological considerations. The psychological consideration was a major component in guaranteeing that our acceptance of Torah would be an authentic one. And that needs And we have to feel that. In the way that Revaran Kutlis says it, in his Sefer, he says it very beautifully, he says, a person should feel as if he's nicer kesa hamelech. He should feel that he's carrying not his crown, but the crown of the king. He's, he has an ability to carry God's crown. And it was given to him to watch and to protect and to preserve. And this will create within himself a tremendous confidence and a sense of importance and esteem. And it will give him the strength to carry himself with a, a tremendous amount of courage. The godless. And it will give him the ability to reach greatness. And then Rav Aaron Kutl says, And for us to be able to walk around proud and with esteem is God's greatest honor. Because as a father would like to see his children feel confident and good about themselves, God wants us to feel that way in our relationship to Him. So it's not only our esteem, but it's God's greatest, God's greatest delight when we feel that way. That when we feel that we have that mission of carrying and protecting the crown. Now, there's something here that needs a little definition and Revaran Kutler was very, very sharp in picking this up. He says we find in the world that there are a lot of people that are appear to be very confident, very sure, a lot of esteem. And he said, but you've got to be careful. He says, because sometimes it has nothing to do with a positive self-image. Sometimes what it is is that really what's happening is, is that I don't have any esteem for anything. You're nothing, and you're nothing, and this doesn't mean anything, and this doesn't mean anything. So if nothing means anything, I've got to survive. So in other words, my sense of commitment and pushing ahead might not necessarily be sourced in a tremendous sense of purpose of life and importance of life and esteem of life. It can just be that I've just totally... I, in other words, I could be a person that has, has made valueless and I no appreciation for anything. And okay, now I'm in this desert of nothingness. And in my tremendous drive to survive, I've got to come up above it. So Revaran Kutler says a person has to be very careful when he does see within himself this tremendous urge and confidence and esteem, where does it really come from? Does it come from an authentic, 
healthy feeling about oneself or is it just that gut survival where you, you know, nothing is, and everything is nothing, so I'm just going to have to survive in this desert. And that's a very careful area that we have to define. What Ravaran Cutler is basically saying is that the person's image of himself as being a nothing or close to it, being a failure or close to it, of not being capable of, be, of reaching the highest levels of human potential, all of those things are a toes. They're a tremendous mistake. And they're the greatest crime of man against himself to believe that. And that is what prevents godless. That is what prevents people from becoming great. That is the key factor that prevents people from becoming great. It was so clear because I never learned by Rivaran Cutler but I did learn by his son who was a very good student of his father. And if there was one thing that shone out more than anything else was that tremendous pride and esteem of carrying the Kesser, of carrying God's crown. What he always used to say was, If a person shouldn't cheapen himself by the things that are going around him. Carry yourself with esteem. Know what you're here for. Know your potentials. Be proud of those potentials. Don't fall into, into all kinds of trivialities which are only mitzamtsen. They only constrain and restrict the ability for a person to grow. The way Rivarin says it, he says, Adam, Nivra, a person is created, Mi'ikrei, from the very beginning, Bechol HaPachsisim, with every potential and with every ability, legatless, to become a great person. Going back to being able to accept this, we mentioned before that the greatest problem in accepting this is because there is a, a competitive force that gives us the impression of being a part, uh, an essential part of our personality. And that is our materialistic pursuit. Rivaran Kutler's Atzal gives us two ways in which we can build our image. Okay, we talked about Banam Lashem Alakechem, we're children of God, we have to have a positive image of ourselves because that is the authentic image. But how do you do it? How do you do it? If you don't have it, how do you do it? So one way that Rivaran Kutler says is that what the person has to do is he has to come into contact with that essential personality. And to come in contact with that essential personality is impossible without Torah. Impossible. There is no way that a person will be able to identify that essential personality which says Banim Lashem Alekechem without Torah. There has to be an involvement in Torah. But then, to deal with the competitive force that makes it so hard to accept this essential personality... Ravaran Kutl says there's another mitzvah in the Torah. And that mitzvah is the mitzvah of Kedoshim Tiyu. Be holy. Now what does that mean, be holy? What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to go into an ivory tower and not talk to anybody for five years? Is that how it becomes? No. So the Torah tells us, Kedoshim Tiyu, be holy. Kadesh Asmecha B'mutalach. Make yourselves holy in the things that you're allowed to do. Which means... If a person goes into a kosher restaurant, I'm just giving a, an example, 
person goes into a kosher restaurant, a glock kosher restaurant, there are three rabbinical supervisions on the restaurant, and he sits down, and there are two ways that he can eat. He can order what is necessary and healthy for him to exist and to perform as a good Jew, or he can order all the garbage and ask for three portions of it. And what has he done wrong? He's eaten kosher, and he'll bench. He'll bench out loud. He didn't do anything wrong. But the point being that the person that directs what he's doing, even within the area that's permissible, and he does it within the context of what's correct, that means that he has not established, in terms of lifestyle, that his materialistic needs are his personality, that this is what I am. I know what I am. When I sit down by the table, I haven't lost, I haven't lost my perspective or my direction as to who I am and what I'm supposed to be doing. And this is another way of being able to do it. I don't lose my dignity in face of a quarter of a chicken. I don't lose it. I don't lose it. I don't fall apart and forget who I am in face of that. On the other hand, the person that just goes wild in the restaurant, what he's really done is he stripped the dignity from himself. And when he does that and he lives that way, what happens is he strengthens the competitive force. And it makes it very difficult to then tell that person or convince that person that his essential personality is Banimatem Lashem Alekechem. What does that mean? In the restaurant it didn't look like Banim Lashem Alekechem. So Kedoshim Tiyu is a very delicate mitzvah. Because what Kedoshim Tiyu does is, yes, it makes us holy, and it gives us direction in our lives, but in a much deeper sense what it does is it gives us the ability of recognizing what our true personality is. That's what Kedoshim to you does. Going a little bit deeper. We're almost finished, but just going one step deeper. When Lazaro talks about the ultimate goal of Judaism... He says the ultimate goal of Judaism is that a person should feel pleasure. A statement for religion that's very hard to understand. What does religion have to do with pleasure? But Lazaro says that the ultimate level is where a person creates a rapport with God and has pleasure from that rapport. Without the mitzvah of Kedoshim Tiyu, it's very difficult because one heart can't possess two loves. In other words, if a person wants to reach a level of feeling comfortable and enjoying his rapport with God, that's a level of love. And it's very difficult to have conflicting loves going on in one heart. The way the Chavos HaVavah says it is, it's impossible. One heart can't possess within itself two loves that conflict with each other. So what Kedoshim Tiyu does is it puts everything into a perspective where you're not creating two conflicting loves. It keeps it in check. Getting back to the question of how does Emes, how does truth combat the Yetzirah of I know it's wrong and I'll do it anyway? You know what the answer is? Very simple. It's the Emes, it's the truth of my image. Nothing else. It's not the Emes that you need to unwind or to <coughs> unravel a swindling scheme. That's one emiss. The, the shrewdness of calling a spade a spade. But there's another emiss. 
and it's the deepest emiss of all, the truth of what I am. If a person develops the truth of what he is, he can contend with any kind of inclination. Because if I really know what I am, I can't do something that's incompatible with that. I can't. I can't do that. It's when I don't really feel strongly about myself that I'll succumb to that kind of a thing. In last week's portion, in last week's portion, Asaph comes home, starving. The Talmud tells us that he did five Averos on that day. He lived with a woman. He murdered, right? He murdered somebody. He worshipped idols. He denied the existence of God and denied in the principle of resurrection. He came home, sold his birthright for a, um, a plate of lentils, and the Torah describes his crime of that day is that he disgraced his birthright. So the commentaries say, that's all you could say for the man? The man did five criminal acts, and the way you sum total his day's activities is he disgraced his birthright for selling it for a bowl of soup. Why isn't the Torah more clear about what the man did wrong? And the commentaries say very simply, yes, those were the things that he did wrong, but was, what was the root? The root was because he didn't appreciate what the birthright stood for. He didn't see that his image fit in what the birthright meant. Birthright meant that, they would be, that his lineage would become the priests. They would represent holiness for the rest of the Jewish people. And he said, me, a priest? Me, a holy person? That doesn't fit into me. Who needs that? I don't even want it. That's the root. The greatest crime is not the idol worship, and it's not the, the murder, and it's not everything else that Asaph did. The greatest crime is one's own self-disgrace. The vayivez Asaves habchayr. Denying to oneself that one has those potentials. <clears throat> the situation is not a stationary one. Being that a person is a ben lamakam, being that a person has this quality of 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 being a son of God. There is limitless growth. Limitless growth. Since it's his essential personality, there is limitless growth. There's no defining how warm and how close the relationship of a child to his father can be. There is no way of defining the relationship of a person to God. And therefore, our lives are lives of constant growth. Standing still is going backwards. Now, usually the statement that I just made now, standing still is going backwards, which is based in one of the verses in Proverbs where Solomon the king says, the way of life is always to go up to prevent the person from going down. It's usually explained as that if a person stops moving in one direction, he inevitably starts going down. That's how it's explained. Revaran Cutler says it's much deeper than that. It's not because if he stops going up, he starts going down. If he stops in the middle, it means he's denying that he's a ben lamakim. He's denying that he's a child of God. Because being a child of God means that there's always motion. There's always upward development. If I can suffice at a certain level, that means that I'm, I'm, I, I'm lacking in a full, intense image of what I am as a child of God. 
and that itself is my Yerida. That itself is the seeds of my downfall. Arachayim l'mala l'maskil. We have to understand that when we talk about truth, the first and most essential truth in spiritual growth is for a person to know who he is himself. And that the Torah clearly defines for us. You are children of God. Don't forget it and don't deface it. And that is the key for spiritual growth. The question that was asked last week was at what point, right, at what point is that determination made that this person is not going to do, do the job and therefore it's transferred to another person? The way we answered the class last week was that there are different times in our history and in terms of the building of souls there was a period of time which was considered the gestation period or the embryonic period and things that would happen within that period of time would be critical to the development of souls. And therefore, what Asaf did in that period of time was critical to the nature of that of the soul that he was building. After a certain period in our history, the Jew is born with a soul that no matter what he does, he can't totally destroy it. That was the answer that we gave last week in brief. We can add to that answer by saying that a person loses his mission at that point when he loses the sense of esteem when he loses the, 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 the feeling of, of what he really is. At the point of the Vayivez Esavez Habchara, when the person discards it as that this is insignificant, this is not me, this is not my personality. Right? He dis- In other words, understanding it and discarding it as valueless, it's at that point that it becomes the rich person